what we learn from safety is people sort of slide by safety and don't take it too seriously until the really big, bad crash. Sadly, it often has to involve what are deemed important people. And that's the only time you get more effective regulation. Or in the case of the car companies, all the other safety areas have to follow their own industry standards. And the car companies do not. They don't follow their own standards. They don't have to. No one's making them. And it remains to be seen how catastrophic the bad thing has to be before that changes. Welcome to the bike lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Phil Kotman associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University and author of the Safe Autonomy blog. Professor Philip Kotman is an internationally recognized expert on autonomous vehicle safety whose work spans over 25 years. He is also actively involved with AV policy and standards, as well as a more general embedded system design and software quality. His pioneering research includes software robustness, testing and runtime monitoring of autonomous systems to identify how they break and how to fix them. He has extensive experience in software safety, software quality across numerous transportation, industrial, and defense application domains, including conventional automotive software and hardware systems. He was the principal technical contributor to the UL 4600 standard for autonomous system safety issued in 2020. He's a faculty member of the Carnegie Mellon University's electrical and computer engineering department, where he teaches software skills for mission critical systems. In 2018, he was awarded the highly selective IEEE SSIT Carl Barras Award, for outstanding service in the public interest for his work in promoting automotive computer-based system safety. In 2022, he was named to the National Safety Council's Mobility Safety Advisor Group, and he is the author of the books Better Embedded System Software, How Safe is Safe Enough, Measuring and Predicting Autonomous Vehicle Safety, and the UL 4600 Guidebook in 2022. Phil, welcome to the bike lane. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Really excited to have an expert in with your background to help fill us in on the latest and greatest for all things AV and uh, welcome back to all of our listeners. It's, it's great to have everybody back on the show and, and uh, back together. So let's start out first with your background and I mean, you've got a very unique uh, skill set and expertise. How did, how did you get into this AV plus computer science world? What, what's the, what's the backstory here? Uh, well, we don't have the whole hour for my life story because it's pretty windy. I'll give you some highlights. I did bicycle safety when I was in high school as a public service project. And I didn't know I'd end up doing safety later on, but there you go. Uh, I had some military service. I drove submarines for a living for a while. And, and you take safety pretty seriously when you're a classified number of hundred feet underneath the water uh, and, and uh, you know, a few feet away from nuclear reactor every time you sleep. So, you know, safety's up close and personal there. Uh, but then uh, w- when I got my PhD, I ended up doing embedded systems. So computers that go in all sorts of things, jet engines and elevators and, and all sorts of things. But I ended up eventually doing a lot of automotive work. Uh, and it was more, uh, f- first it was more about the uh, embedded software quality and just making sure the computers work. But I had a unique opportunity to get involved with Carnegie Mellon doing self-driving cars back in the mid-1990s. So in 95, they had a car that went from D.C. to San Diego, 98% hands off the wheel. And I like to joke that they've been working on that last 2% for all these many years after it, almost 30 years now. And I was the safety guy. I wasn't sure what that meant at the time, but I was the safety guy. So I've been doing self-driving car safety for more than 25 years now. That's sort of how I got into it. I, and I've, I've just seen a lot of different aspects of things, including including conventional car safety. Uh, I've, I've looked at engine controllers and, and software practices, but now I'm, I'm more back on to the self-driving car safety. Now that we have a couple generations of technology later and, and it's out on public roads, mm-hmm. that's what I spend a lot of my time on now. Excellent. And it's, it's interesting that you're got started at such an early age. Are, are you a passionate cyclist or where, where did this, where's this coming from? A lot of these things just sort of rose and I thought it was an interesting opportunity. So I took it. Uh, I know I care, I care deeply about safety, but, but when I was in grade school, I didn't grow up saying, I want to be a safety person. I grew up saying, I want to build computers. So there you go. <laughs> what are you up to now at your work at CMU and and how have you been been involved with vulnerable road user safety, which uh, clearly with the with the bike lane, it's it's our core bread and butter in the green paint. I, I understand that. Uh, in the for a couple of years, I worked on the UL forty six hundred standard, uh, and that is about 
think of it as sort of a checklist for all the things you have to think about to make sure an autonomous vehicle AV is safe. And when I use autonomous vehicle, because there's so much terminology out there, I'm talking about a car where it's okay to go sleep in the back seat and you'll wake up alive every single time instead of only sometimes, right? So, so really it's driving itself 100%. When I use autonomous, that's what I mean. And UL4600 is a standard for that. And also vehicles that aren't quite as autonomous, but it's about the computer driving safely. That's what it's about, primarily about autonomous vehicles. And, and so I've worked on that for several years and it's a pretty mature standard now. The third edition just came out. And so it's out there if companies want to figure out what it means to be safe. And a piece of that is that too often everyone talks about, well, let's keep the passenger safe. Let's keep the driver safe. And I always like to point out, those aren't the people I'm worried as much about because they got the airbags. They got the seatbelts. What about all the other people out on the road who aren't in multi-thousand pound roll cages and, and crumple zones and airbags? Those are the people I worry about more. So, so in my in my view, the, the vulnerable use, road users show up that way. It's, it's anyone who's not protected by a by a steel crumple zone crash cage, right? Uh, and and so that features prominently in the standard because you have to keep them safe as well. And 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 well, there's a reason we call them vulnerable, right? So there's that. This year, I sort of switched early in in December, January. I was on a podcast where I said, "All right, 2023 is the year of level two plus plus plus." We're going to go back to levels maybe, but what I say plus, 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 it's because they want you to think it's level three and it's not, you know, they want you to think you don't have to pay attention to the road and it's not really true. They just want you to think that. And, and that was sort of a, a fun, funny sort of way of saying we're not going to see the robo taxis as much. They're not going away, but it's no longer going to be that there's a million robo taxis out on the road next year. That just, it was never going to happen, but now people are recognized it's not going to happen. And, and so what's the car business going to do? They're going to pivot hard into, well, the driver's there so we can use them for safety. And that brings a fresh set of challenges. So that's what I'm working on this year. But, but regardless, whoever's sharing the road with a car, these cars have to be safe. And whether the humans involved or not, you, you have to ensure safety. So, th so that's what I'm working on these days. Amen. It's uh, something that we we talk about a lot um, in in our our industry, whether it's the conference room or or WebEx Zoom call or uh, with the the safety consortium that we're part of. It's it's refreshing to get this from a research perspective and and an in practice perspective. And I, the more people I've talked to in the past twelve months have also gotten to the similar conclusions about. The, the requirement of supporting VRUs in order to be releasing. Well, let, let me start with a, an observation that I, I don't hear it is important. All the talk is about car people talking to car people, right? And you bet there are car people and, and the details matter and they're up on the tech and they know all these things. But the reality is many, many people don't buy a car to buy a cool car. They're buying an appliance to get them to work and expecting them to spend a lot of time with deep understanding and reflection in the technology and the limits is, is unrealistic. I mean, it's an appliance. It's supposed to work. I mean, how, how many people, there's a telephone, right? You know, do you know which processes in your telephone? Do you know all the, all the details, the tech? It's like, no, no, the, the point is to call the number and, and, you know, you get to talk on the phone. Well, for lots of people, a car is an appliance. And so anytime there's a conversation saying, well, of course, the driver should have known X, Y, Z, it's like, come on, it's an appliance. Why, why do they want to waste any time understanding it? You get in, you turn it on, you press the gas pedal, you use the steering wheel, you're good to go. And if being safe requires more than the enforced knowledge for a basic driver license, we're going to have bad outcomes. Interesting perspective. I, I know that historically the, the auto industry from infotainment or IVI uh, and vehicle infotainment uh, we dealt with this about 10 years ago about like driver workload and um, the, there was a famous, I always refer to this, but everyone in, in that industry knew this. There was this, this famous uh, uh, slide that showed like the stereo that the car industry thinks you want and it had like a bazillion buttons on it. And on the right side, it says the stereo the customer yeah. wants. And it was a blank, it was a black rectangle with a little ox in jack in the middle of it. And it, it's, um, it, yeah, it, right. It, 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 that yeah. kind of experience made sense. And I think that 
from the auto side of things, we have in, like speaking for all of Detroit right now, um, we Metro Detroit, we mm-hmm. we definitely have some playbooks about how to interact with other tech groups. However, what starts to get a little scary is when features that that multiple pe- multiple stakeholders and multiple people that have risk are not included in the conversation. Oh yeah, the stakeholders is huge, and for VR VR views are not being included in the conversation for safety. That we end up right there, and, right? and that's a big reason why we started uh, at at Tome, now part of Valtech, uh, working with uh, Trek, Ford, and and then GM and Nissan and and others, and, uh, and even Honda was was early. They're not officially a part of their membership, but Honda was very early on with promoting safety message standards for uh called the personal safety message or PSM. And like, I, I feel like there were some early moves there, but until there was a uh, coordinated effort to bring together these different folks in, a, in an environment where the engineers were uh, explicitly told that they were allowed to share things and share what they're working mm-hmm. on, that this is and in the industry we like to call this pre-competitive technology so we it took a while for everyone to agree this is pre-competitive not competitive because yeah. uh, i'll tell you that yeah. w- especially with uh a lot of these l4 l5 companies these, these fully autonomous startups is like they look at that as the crown jewels and it's like well i kind of get it but you can't put this into this magical mystery box and expect uh a vulnerable road user or construction worker first responder bicyclist scooterist uh kid you know going on the bus to trust that 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 oh, don't worry it's in it's in a secret special box we'll, we'll keep you safe like that that was the part that was really uncomfortable a few years back and we've made a lot of strides and um i'll share just a couple uh, points here is like we've got the the vulnerable road user safety consortium uh, i know itsa has a good group going sae's been supportive 5gaa is now supportive and, and really looking at this and i think that in especially Phil, for a lot of the work where you've been doing it, it's really put a lime limelight on like, yo, like you got to get this right. Cause you can't just expect everyone to trust that. Well, even if you have it right, which is, is a, a pretty big, if uh, you can't just expect everybody just to trust you. Right. Uh, that's right. And something we've learned in every industry except automotive is that if you don't have transparency, you don't get safety. And there's no reason for automotive to be different other than they just don't want to be transparent. It's as simple as that. You're you're not going to get safety without transparency. And if you try and compete on safety, you're not going to get good safety. That just it, it makes they shouldn't be competing on safety. There should be a good enough safety that that is acceptable. You want to add to that? That's great. But there has to be a baseline safety, and it should be a, a no question. You don't see you don't see uh, airlines competing on we crash 17% less than the other guys. I mean, you don't, that's not an airline message you want to hear. Why are the car companies acting like this? Let's talk a little bit about like in focus. So you mentioned this like L2 plus plus. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about like the levels of, of autonomy and and also know like a lot of our listeners are um, hardcore uh, safety transportation people, but uh, there's a, a large cohort of listeners that are coming at this from the consumer tech uh, bicycle side of things. So just, and there's been some changes. So can you kind of like give us the high level about current state of levels of autonomy and then the major changes that we've seen and what does this all mean? Why is this happening? Okay. So SAE used to be Society of Automotive Engineers. Now it just stands for SAE. Uh, has this standard SAE J3016, which, defi- which is not a safety standard. It's not a safety standard. People use it like it was. It's not. Uh, and it defines levels zero through five. And, and the higher the level number, the more the automation is tasked with doing. Uh, and it might be fine for engineers, but it is not only not useful for other discussions, it's actually harmful for the discussions. And the reason is that especially in the middle ones, level two, level three, if you build what it tells you to build, it is guaranteed to be unsafe. It's like not what you want to build. And when you talk to the folks, which I've done, uh, I've talked for hours with these folks. In fact, I'm on the voting committee that sits above that. Okay. Uh, and, And so what they'll say is, well, it's not supposed to be safety standard. And I get that, but governments and regulators are using it as if it were a safety standard. So we got some real issues there. So I I prefer not to talk about the levels because that just propagates something that's doing a lot of harm. However, what what I'll I'll talk about 
I'm, I have a different way I think about it. I'll be happy to summarize it. And people say it maps. And the answer is this standard is so complicated and so many loopholes. It maps until you look at it closely, then it all the mapping falls apart. Okay. So you say, oh, he just means this level. It's like, no, but you have to spend hours reading the standard to realize why it's, it's just really, really a mess. But simply put, first question, is the computer driving or is the person driving? By driving, I mean steering. Is the computer steering or is the person steering? If the person's steering, you got yourself a conventional car. And that doesn't prohibit the computer from going in and doing crash avoidance, right? Active safety, all that. Yeah. But basically, you're, you know, if you stop steering, you're probably going to crash. Well, okay, that's conventional. The next one is the computer steering, but the human's there and, and has shared responsibility. And I call that supervisory because the human is supervising the computer uh, and, is, and is trying to keep it safe. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of really complicated news and stuff that goes on there, but that's it. And so when you hear people say level two or sometimes level three or level two plus, you know, I call that supervisory. But, but I make the distinction it's steering because if you automate steering, we've known this since the 90s. If you automate steering, people stop paying attention. It's just inevitable. That's what people do. And, and the, there's a, a third one, which is um, autonomous, which means the human can be asleep in the back, right? It's not their problem. And there's a fourth one that no one ever talks about, but is essential, which is testing, okay? And people try and say testing and supervisor are the same because in both cases, there's a human sitting there. But what the human is doing is very different. If you have a car that is going to try and kill you on occasion, that's testing, and you don't want a civilian retail customer in a car that's going to try and kill them because they're not trained and equipped to handle that. So if a car says beta, that's a testing vehicle and should only be operated by trained uh, testers and should not be sold to the retail public. Now, I know this is this particular company who's not doing what I just said, and I see that as a problem because normal people aren't necessarily able to do testing and, and uh, when you talk to the companies that do a rigorous testing course, a whole bunch of good drivers fail out of it. That's got to tell you something. In, the, in addition to your point about the beta, um, I, I haven't heard that, that viewpoint before. So thank you for sharing that. I agree on there is a fourth. It's, um, I guess, in some like very rudimentary equivalent, it's almost like having the magnet saying student driver or the... And then there's another level, which is like the bumper sticker, which is like, you know, which is presumably a <laughs> new driver with or without their parent as a, as a function of their their level that they should be driving, right? Well, if, if it can't drive to some level of competence, okay, we can come back to the level of competence. If it can't already drive to some level of competence, it's a test system and the, the, the human test driver is there to prevent a bad outcome. And, and the thing is with, with student drivers, people love to make that analogy. But the student driver has something these cars don't have. To be in, uh, to be a student driver, uh, people say, "Why don't you do a Why don't you do a driving test?" Well, written test, vision test, maneuvering test, ability to park. But they forget about the part where you cough up a birth certificate to show you're a human being, mm -hmm. and that's a proxy for sixteen years, depending on the state, et cetera. Sixteen years of, of figuring out, of learning to know what happens next. This technology has no common sense. Now, we can make snarky remarks about 16-year-olds in common sense, but, but they actually have a lot more common sense than some of these machines. So if they're not ready, you can't just say, oh, well, we let humans out on the road. Well, prove to me this computer has as much common sense as a 16-year-old, and then we'll have a discussion, but you can't do that. There's no way to do that. Yeah, interesting point. I, I was thinking about this from the context of like your earlier point about like the, the VRUs that don't have... Uh, metal and airbags and seatbelts to uh, uh, give them some level of protection where um, the only level of protection I've got while riding is, is hopping a curb and crashing to then not get hit by a car. So it's um, I think there's also kind of a, another thing about having a human. And I, I think this can be uh, I'm open to the possibility that it can be replicated by a machine driving, but when you approach uh, a, a a vulnerable situation or where you need to communicate that the human to human communication. So when I'm riding in very many situations, I'm looking for eye contact. I'm looking for an acknowledgement that, that I'm, I'm being seen. And 
what's kind of scary is like also like if I'm looking at a vehicle and I see student driver bumper sticker on it or the magnets or I see uh, frankly let's say like a delivery driver you know I'm I'm kind of a little more on alert to think that that this is someone whose job is to pop out of the vehicle and um, they they should in theory be going um, out of the uh, passenger side, the right side of the vehicle to, to the home and not like across the side street. But the reality is in, in many of the side streets, which is where most of us choose to ride because they're lower speed limits and a lot less vulnerability. You got to keep, you got to keep your head on a swivel to look for those situations and have that level of expectation. And from a, a vehicle that is using a system uh, to, to drive the car, that that's always been my hesitation as a cyclist is like, how do I have confidence that I've been recognized. Yeah, that's that's a very reasonable concern. Uh, these cars, if you listen to the industry line, they're like, oh, we see all directions at once and we never blink and we never go to sleep. But they have a problem that if they see something that is unfamiliar to them, they may spectacularly get it wrong. Just mm-hmm. like have you know, no idea. There, there's one set of data we looked at where this uh, perception system was consistently bad at recognizing people wearing yellow uh, which is a problem for construction workers and bicyclists and raincoats, and we saw it fail on those, right? And how how would you as a person have any idea that this would be a thing, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have a good idea of what's going on inside its head, so to speak. Uh, there's no eye contact. Now, the, the vehicle motion can also is also a communication device. There's very subtle vehicle motions that are communication device. So if it, if it pulls further from the curb as it comes near you, then that sort of gives you an idea. It probably saw you, and that's why it's doing it. Uh, but but mm-hmm. we've seen some inconsistent behaviors there too. So so the problem is it doesn't think like a human. It doesn't have common sense. If it hits something that it's not sure about, it is very prone to having false confidence that's doing the right thing when it's just completely guessing. So it's really tough to figure out what it's thinking, so to speak. And that does make it hard for other road users. Absolutely. There has been progress. It's gotten better. But the question to some extent is when is good enough going to be good enough? And uh, I'll plug uh, Bob Nyduke from uh, Trek Bikes. We had him on the show uh, and he's been a, a great ally for bringing these these various industries together to have that conversation and talked a lot about what they call conspicuity. And it's a word I didn't know of before I met, met Bob and the Trek team. And I know a lot now. And it's basically looking like a human and not just a flashing light up ahead. And um, it, it just opens up a much more deeper discussion about um, both on, on a social level and equity level is what's the onus for a VRU to have conspicuity so that you are more identifiable to machines as opposed to like, uh, which it's very common to think like, hey, I'm, I'm out here walking or I'm, I'm a construction worker out here working or I'm a first responder helping someone on the side of the road. It's not my job to wear some beacon or thing or have some help a computer understand who I am. But then there's the other side of that argument, which is not argument, but discussion point really is that like, well, if there are things that can be embedded that are on the, the vest or other things that's already there that doesn't have cost, doesn't have power considerations that can help, you know, why not do that? And that's very common in the, uh, the MUTCD guidelines for existing uh, products that are put in work zones that have certain guidelines. So they're, uh, amongst other things, they, they have a better recognition from a human. So, I mean, there, there's like, there is some precedent set. So there's kind of a, a like a growing discussion there about uh, if this is happening. So let's just make for the argument, for the sake of argument that it's happening, then then the VRUs are, are get the option to like take some steps to be a little more recognizable to these types of systems. But then it's like, all right, well, you know, who, who owns that, right? Yeah. So I've heard those discussions several times. So they always get really complicated, tangled up. Let me make a couple distinctions. One is if you're talking construction zone, these are people being paid to do a job and there there's regulations. And so instituting regulations that people in this known high risk job need to wear conspicuity devices. I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay. That's occupational safety. You know, where you wear hard hats, you wear reflective vests, you know, you have this gizmo, you clip onto the vest and you change the battery every morning and, you know, that's fine. Where I sort of draw the line is getting everyday people and imposing requirements on them to make it easier for the car companies to make money selling this technology. Uh, and, and you can't hold normal civilians to the same level of accountability. 
and and the so first of all it puts a burden on them right because it's never free it's at least time attention remembering right you know oh don't cross the road without this or you might die is not not a great position to put average folks into but there's also other issues that um what you see is that people get blamed for not having taken the steps right and so you don't want to get in a situation where uh, and this is already this already happens the dialogue's already started the industry's already or whoever, everyone assumes it's the industry, has promoted sort of this sort of outcome. Oh, well, that pedestrian was killed, but they weren't wearing a bright clothing, so it's their own fault they were killed. And when you cross that line, you've created a real problem. So it's, sure, it makes sense. I, I don't buy black raincoats. <laughs> I don't. I buy bright colored raincoats, right? Uh, to, you know, to bright blue or bright yellow or orange or something. You know, I buy a bright raincoat because I like to be visible. But someone wearing a black raincoat shouldn't be told it's your own fault for getting hit, for walking in a marked pedestrian crosswalk with the light because you're in a black raincoat. That's ridiculous, right? So it's okay to take steps to help yourself, but shifting the burden of responsibility is a real issue, and it, it is very prone to happening. So that's why this conversation is so complicated. Yeah, we're going to get to uh, insurance in a little bit with a recent article yeah. you talked about, and we'll, we'll uh, put it. A very temporary pin on that that point about um, risk and and shifting and liability and insurance against that. So let, let let me add one little one. Okay, let's say your cell phone is supposed to be beacon, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what if an eight year old forgets to charge the cell phone? Like eight year old happen, right? You, you have my family <laughs> number, so it's uh, <laughs> you know what if a kid forgets to charge their cell phone? My my kids are always having this. Uh, they're, they're older now, but their cell phone was always going running out of battery, and and they shouldn't be run over because their cell phone ran out of battery, right? I mean, that's the kind of issue you have. Yeah, we got, we got plenty of people in my family that that have difficulty keeping their phone charged, so it's uh, Great, there it's you not go. an there age age specific issue. <laughs> Uh, and I, I tell you, there's also the, like we've talked about this many times in the show is, is uh, when you talk about uh, the residents of, of an area, um, equity is huge. And we'll get, we'll talk about infrastructure in a second, but like, I, I feel like the onus can't be on, you must have this in a certain area. Um, I really, if I want to give you some kudos, I really like your point about occupational hazards and things that are, are, uh, um, compliance issues that can be done versus the the general populace. You're, and, you're getting a paycheck. You should follow rules. That's okay. But don't impose those rules on other folks. Now, if you want if you want to impose a rule that all bikes have to have a transponder to get a bike license, you know, maybe, but you can't just say, oh yeah, little Johnny, before you walk to school here, carry this five pounds of gear and make sure the battery's charged or you're going to get killed. That's insane. And we can't, we can't go there. Yeah. We, We've been very vocal about that this has to work with someone riding, I always say like their 1975 Schwinn. And, um, and then for a lot of yeah, people, right, right, they, right, when you right. talk about uh, folks that, that that may be their only way to get to work and uh, they're riding right? a bike yeah. to the bus or or they put the bike on the bus and then and go off. And it's yeah. it's uh, that that's unrealistic. I, I do think that there is is clearly some, I think, challenges when, and I've seen this from, uh, the bicycling advocacy group and they've, they've come a long way on embracing mm-hmm. technology that, that can help. So, uh, mm-hmm. whether that's from the bike industry or the car industry, that it's not like, like fighting technology that can help people on the principle that, that this might at some point lead us down a path that it would become, Oh, well, people need to just add this. I think that the the conversations progressed a lot, and I want to put a lot of kudos out to the team at, at People for Bikes and the League of American Bicyclists because they've really come a long way on even again back to the earlier point from the start of the the show today is about participating, getting other stakeholders to talk and and find some common yeah. ground. But we're not there yet. We we still have a ways to go. And I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe the solution here is is not a bike license for all riders, but maybe it's requirements for shared bicycles that are being deployed in certain cities that are going to have uh, connected infrastructure, which then it doesn't put the onus. I mean, the, the only downside is that it could arguably put the cost on that person and say, well, this is too expensive to, to rent. And you're just passing that cost to that consumer. But yeah, I mean, there, there's, def- I mean, I'm not advocating that per se. I'm just saying that like, there's, there's probably some middle ground that, that can be found uh, with, with something like that. Well, we can move on to the next topic, but the <laughs> final word for me is, is equity is an issue. And having the car companies have offload costs onto other people sharing the road with them 
is probably not a good po- social social policy. That's the way. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So, um, I want to come back to when you're talking about, you, you mentioned the challenge about that, that fourth, uh, piece, uh, the testing, the testing, the beta testers. And it's not just beta. It's the, it's the robo taxis with the safety driver. It's any, any, or robo taxis without safety drivers. You know, if you're not ready to deploy your testing and testing puts everyone at risk. Agreed. My thought here is in, in to a question is like, in consumer tech, that's normal. And and many of our listeners, because this is a, a B2B show uh, in industry, many of our listeners personally or professionally have beta versions from Tesla from Apple on their phone or they're testing websites. And uh, like I'll occasionally load a beta something or other for, for the bike stuff I love and enjoy. But, you know, if it doesn't work, maybe my power meter stops working and I have to like reload something. Yeah. Are you going to kid? Are you going to kill some kid in a crosswalk the website? No. So it's it's once it's safety critical, it really changes the stakes for beta testing. Do you have a feeling on uh, a, like just or maybe just some sort of a framework or even just a way to guide the conversation? Because I think everyone would agree that that's a challenge, and, and, and some many people would say it's even a problem about this uh, non-deployment status of of uh, vehicles on roadway. Do you have a proposed solution? Are we talking, for example, like we just need to stick everybody at ACM or M City and and not let them out, and you know keep the uh, vehicles in a fenced environment before they hit some member, or like is there some other method that you think would be a solution to this? There, there's no technical reason to do what's going on in the roads with public road testing with un, unsuitable equipment. There's just no reason. There's no justification for it. What they could and should, and other responsible companies do do is put qualified test drivers in the vehicles. There's a standard, a different standard, SAJ 3018, not 3016, but 3018, which is here's how you make sure the test driver's doing the job properly. And that's what all the responsible companies do. Put a test driver in and then do your public road testing with someone who is able to actually ensure safety while you're driving around. The, the, the uh, argument, well, you know, it's um, uh, we're going to get more data this way well, that's not really what's going on the way they say, but more importantly, uh, that saves cost and gets you to market faster compared to building a simulation, but it puts everyone else at risk. Uh, you, there are other ways to do it. That's not the only way. They may choose that way, but it's placing risk on all the other road users, and it's not essential for the technology to really work. That's a choice, not a have to do it that way. So we're going to see the same challenges with infrastructure. Infrastructure bill has been funded. We've got SS uh, Safe Streets for All, SS4A. We've got smart grants. Uh, some, some of them are deployment. Most of them are planning and the expectation, at least the vibe, let's call it, in the .gov world is that they will be deployments for many additional items in, in 2024. So is this same issue of this beta group going to happen with the municipalities and, um, you know, and like I you certainly talk about municipal preemption and like what, like how is this going to work when we start having connected intersections from all these cities that uh, are going to be, it's kind of the wild West, I call it, but like it, it's coming, which I, I'm excited about this, but like, like from a safety standpoint, what, what does this mean? For- the whole, the whole thing's a wild, the whole thing's a wild. Yeah. yeah. So how's this, <laughs> how, what's, this is a huge topic right now. So like, like how does this move yeah. over to smart infrastructure, the ITSA community? All right. There's a lot packed in there. Um, what we're seeing now is companies pulling out the driver and operating in some cities. And we're seeing a lot of chaos caused by that. Uh, and, and really a lot of that could be avoided if they just kept the safety drivers in the vehicles. Uh, there's no reason. There's no reason not to have a safety driver in there, except optics and publicity and and making the investors happy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's what you're spending billions of dollars a year, and you can't afford someone to sit to ride shotgun and get it out of a hard spot. That just it just makes no sense. It's it's got to be optics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but but you're going to see that continue. Uh, you want to talk about uh, connected vehicles? Um, this is a little tricky. Because if let's say you put a transponder on the traffic light and it says which way it's green, the car has to work properly even if that transponder dies because equipment breaks. So it's okay to use the infrastructure instrumentation and transponders and all that stuff. It's okay to use it to provide extra hints. You know, I'm 51% sure that light's green, but it says it's green. Okay, now I'm more confident. But just 
following the infrastructure without any common sense and any other sensors is going to lead to bad outcomes. And nobody's got the money to put sensors on everything. So these folks say, oh, well, every road user will have a sensor and so will never hit anything because everyone will have a transponder. We got the kid or, or family members, in your case, who forget to charge the cell phones. There's that, right? But I, I've been in these meetings where I say, oh, transponders will solve everything. It's like, well, who puts the transponder on the moose? What's your plan there? I've got deer who walk through our, our neighborhood on a regular basis and eat all the flowers. It's like, guess what? There's no transponders on them either. What's your plan here? Yeah, as that progresses further, I am very interested to hear how safety standards will be coming to adopt because the trust factor of the manual non-connected systems, I guess technically signal phase and timing has some connections and you know the folks mm-hmm. that run ITS systems have this. That's not what I'm referring to, I think, obvious for yeah. most people, but just want to make I don't want to like upset our our <laughs> our crews that are doing that. But like like I what I mean is like the consumer to infrastructure connection and um, you, you know, you hear it and, and ADA community is a big part of, of, uh, the VRU story sure. as well. It's, it's sure. And it can be helpful. The infrastructure can be helpful. Make no, make no mistake. I'm not yep. saying it's not helpful. It's just not a silver bullet. And, uh, anyone who's building autonomous vehicle technology cannot hundred percent trust it to be there when they need it. Mm-hmm. So saying, oh, it's a, you know, if only you had that, everything would be easy. Uh, no, probably not. I, I'm reminded of a story in Pittsburgh. We have a lot of connected intersections that are doing a lot of work, not for automated vehicles, but just for pedestrians, ADA, that sort of thing. And one of the things is that um, that you the, the, you have buttons. Some people call them beg buttons. I've heard that, you know, but you have the buttons, right? And every once in a while, the light has to change, even though there's no button, because the button might be broken. I mean, just stuff like this you have to think about. Yeah, in cycling, we call this a dead red. And it's it's when okay. you're a cyclist and you're stuck at a stop bar and the light's not going to change because it's not identifying you. And Yeah, the sensor doesn't see your frame, right? Yeah. Uh, or the, you're yeah. just are at a light that just won't change because it's uh, for, for any light. number of reasons. And it's, <laughs> right, right, right. It, so yeah. like those types of things, I think, are great day one use cases for connected infrastructure. Yeah. But again, my earlier point around uh, eye contact with uh, mm-hmm. with a human as a car, mm-hmm. it is also nice to get some sort of a visual um, recognition that it's got you. And I, I've seen various companies offering solutions for infrastructure that will identify a VRU and then notify that you have been detected. And I think that, that more options for that is better in addition to the what I'll call the analog uh, approach of pressing a button. Yeah, so I, I like that feedback the feed, because ultimately all the road users are invo- involved in a social interaction and people don't recognize or acknowledge that as often as they should. It's a social interaction. Mm-hmm. And anything that provides social cues is helpful. You have to recognize that social cues are sometimes misinterpreted or sometimes not quite right. There's one situation I saw. Somebody said, oh, we're going to have this thing that's going to say you see the pedestrian by putting a smile in front of the car. And it was just a thought. It was, it was a cute idea, right? But there, there's a photo with four pedestrians, one with a baby, car- baby stroller and a couple of the pedestrians. And the car says, I see a pedestrian. Well, which one? How do you know it sees all of them? How do you know if the guy before yeah. you gets out of the intersection, it didn't see you and it's going to ha- take off? I, and and things like eye gaze tracking, people are great at stuff like that. People are great at facial expression, eye gaze tracking, and replicating that with a car uh, with information is going to be tough. We have, we have a lot of evolution behind that, right? Yeah, there, there's these, um, and some of the highway design, and I, I believe there, I think it's the MUTCD, there's a new version coming out. And uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's something that... Uh, it's pretty exciting to understand like roadway design and and being focused on uh, more multimodal use cases. And uh, mm-hmm. Noah Bunyan, our, our uh, inaugural uh, guest on the show, talked about still the best form of protection for VRUs is asphalt and concrete. And it, I, I, yeah. she's right. I mean, it, now it doesn't mean it's the only thing and she wasn't implying that, but it's it's like understanding that, the, and, and this is part of that, again, going back to that main theme, Phil, about like the conversation of bringing in those stakeholders is that it can't just be one side against the other. Um, it's got to yeah. be that understanding that like, look, it, to make a safer environment, it might mean there needs to be some situations where there's more separation and less sharing. And, but then there's other situations where the sharing needs to be better. And if that's what mm-hmm. it's going to take to uh, increase safety and decrease vulnerability, then that's a conversation I think we all should be leaning into. I, I would say aut- autonomous vehicles don't really change that conversation. 
people want to say, oh, once the computers are driving the cars, you got nothing to worry about. There's no data to show that that's actually true. So I, yeah. I wouldn't change. It's, it's a, a real hazard that people say, oh, uh, self-driving cars are coming, so we don't have to invest in X, Y, and Z. And every case I've seen, that outcome's a mistake. You should not treat them any differently than human cars. They'll they'll fail differently, but they'll still fail. So let's let's move on to when they fail. You you recently published a thought sparking article about insurance and AVs back in February. What sparked you to what got you going to write about this insurance article, and what were some of the key outcomes that and takeaways that that, that people it would get our listeners to go? Hmm, let me click on that in the show notes here to get into this. <laughs> Well, that that's actually a section out of my "How Safe Is Safe Enough" book. Um, so, so it was, written, and I pulled it out on a blog to to get a little more attention to it. But I just heard one or two or ten times too many people say, "Well, we have insurance, so we must be safe." Uh, and and insurance doesn't prove you're safe; it proves the insurance company understands the risk well enough, and you're willing to pay to take the risk. And that risk may be more than than other stakeholders want to take on. So, so it doesn't mean you're safe. And if you if you don't doubt that, price out motorcycle insurance versus car insurance. And I don't have a th- I don't have anything against motorcycles, but you know the data shows they are more dangerous to ride. But the insurance is cheaper, and so that's kind of that, you know how much more do I have to argue? Uh, it insurance pressures you to be safer and not ridiculously unsafe because you couldn't afford the premium. But if you're willing to pay to be unsafe, they're happy to sell insurance. If you don't believe that, uh, you know, you can get uh, insurance for active duty service members in a war zone. I had that. Okay. Uh, not particularly safe, but you can get that insurance. So it didn't mean what I was doing was safe. You mentioned in the article and quote, if AVs become a big insurance market, it's advantageous for insurance companies to use early policies as loss leaders to, in effect, buy part of the market by establishing early relationships with AV developers. So I, I, this is what like stopped me dead in my tracks. I'm like, Hmm. So in other words, it's like, like folks would say like, I'm going to, this is going to be a big market. I'll buy this down. And wouldn't, wouldn't that mean that then you might have like a loss leading, uh, non-sustainable, uh, which kind of reminds me of the the EV credits, but it, like, is that is that kind of what you're you're getting at here? That yeah, that's kind of the deal. So you you can you can get it. You can say, hey, we're going to insure them the same as a regular car, okay? And we don't know what the risk. We have no idea what the risk is. We're just going to insure them the same as a regular car. It's a car. Car's a car. Here's the insurance, and you don't know the risk, but you're okay. Why? Because you're only insuring ten of them or a hundred of them. And there's a policy cap of a $1 million or $10 million payout, or in some states, 50 k uh, Some of the state laws have gotten pretty bad that way. And the worst you're out, you know, one payout, and then you've pulled the policy. Uh, and, and you're willing to put that much money at risk mm. to be one of the early movers in the market because you see this huge market downstream. Uh, it's purely a, a financial maneuver. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just don't expect high insurance premiums to deter companies from from doing unsafe things. That's just not that's that's not going to happen. Yeah, don't confuse uh, low insurance cost with a false sense of safety. Yeah, they they don't know the risk. They have no idea what the risk is. They're just picking a number out of a hat until they get experience. Once they get experience, they'll they'll adjust the number. But it, now it's it's just a guess. Now, now, arguably, every product that's ever been insured would have that similar conundrum. I mean, unless otherwise you'd have things sure. going uninsured. And and you mentioned and cited uh, UL uh, underwriters laboratories in, in, in the 1890s. I didn't know this until I read, read your article that it was founded to improve fire safety. I thought they were just the folks that put stuff on my my electronic plugs and were doing certs. I assume they were from the 1980s, not the 1890s. So underwriters, as in underwriters laboratories, like underwriters are people who write insurance. I mean, the link goes back that far. Mm-hmm. And this is about I, this is about you know that newfangled electricity stuff uh, <laughs> was causing fires. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's how they got in the business, right? So I learned something uh, that I wasn't expecting uh, catching a, an AV insurance article. But it, with that being said, 
what kind of, do you think this, like, should people be going back in time to try to like learn some lessons? I know the old adage of like history just keeps repeating itself, but if somebody wanted to like on this show, we like to talk about solutions. So would one of the solutions be that people should do their, their history research and really look at the process that these other types of insurance uh, products going into a new market with new tech and back then it was electricity, but like, is that, is that a playbook that we should be pulling from or a playbook we should be learning what not to do from, or a little bit of both? What, what's the thoughts? Well, there? Maybe insurance. I would say even more just safety engineering. So I'll, I'll, we'll put this, uh, this pointer on the, the show notes, but I have a page of historical safety disasters I use in my teaching. And many of the disasters are, here's why we have thus and such a regulation. So for example, um, commercial building structural things for like tanks and, and valves and stuff like that. A lot of that goes back to the great molasses flood in Boston, you know, a hundred plus years ago. And a lot of these happened of you know, uh, NTSB is because of the plane crash that was in the news. Right. So what we learn from safety is people sort of slide by safety and don't take it too seriously until the really big, bad crash. Sadly, it often has to involve what are deemed important people you know, involve is arises. And that's the only time you get more effective regulation. Or in the case of the car companies, all the other safety companies, all the other safety areas have to follow their own industry standards. And the car companies do not. They don't follow their own standards. They don't have to. No one's making them. And it remains to be seen how catastrophic the bad thing has to be before that changes. Hmm. As we're talking about crashes uh, with all of the the current, let's call them current autonomous vehicles and crashes or semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicle crashes that are happening. Are we just highlighting a drop in the bucket compared to the total human crashes, which there, I mean, there's clearly an argument there, or is this a tip of an industry iceberg? And we're all, especially those of us that ride bikes and work in the roadways on the Titanic. Yeah. Maybe I don't need to be that extreme, but I'm curious, like, like on that point, like how grim is this and you know what what's the solution on this i always go for the colorful question uh the, i apologize for taking it but semi, don't no don't ever say the word semi autonomous it's just just a bad word to use there's there's uh conventional there's fully autonomous and then there's shared responsibility is, is a better phrasing uh just just to be clear to, so so that the listeners know try try stay away from semi autonomous cuz you you go bad places with that uh but to to get to the question uh, the answer is nobody but the car companies knows how safe this technology is, and it's unclear if they know. Now, you hear them all say, well, of course it'll be safer because humans drive poorly. Well, that that's just a complete hand wave. Just because people make mistake, mistakes doesn't mean computers won't make different mistakes, and we already know they do. Now we're seeing we're seeing the car dragging through a bunch of down power lines without realizing what's going on. We know they're going to make mistakes that humans would call stupid mistakes, even they don't drive drunk. So, so we don't know which is going to be safer. All right. Now the, some of the companies, one of the companies keeps saying it's safer. Other companies are trying to say, Oh, look, we have a million miles. That must mean we're safe. Well, the average time between fatalities, including all the drunken impaired and distracted drivers is hundred million miles. One million miles, that's nice. 99 more million plus to go, right? So it didn't tell us anything yet. Um, what? So we don't know. And the companies that say we're sure, they're sure they're safe, if they were so sure they could publish the data and they're not doing it or they're publishing gamed or, or clearly puffed up data or data that any scientist looks at and says, this data doesn't make any sense, right? So either they don't know they're safe and they're just making stuff up or they know they're unsafe and they're waving their hands to avoid admitting it. Because if if they were safe, why wouldn't they just publish the data to prove it? If they had the data, why wouldn't they publish it? It makes no sense not to. So I, I can't say they're unsafe, but they have tremendous incentive to prove to everyone they're safe and they're not doing it. So that tells me which way the wind's blowing. It, it scares me on many levels, whether it's my, my work hat or my cycling helmet, that uh, the semantics of safer, safe, safe enough, and then the box around for what, you know, to do what and where. So is it safe yeah, enough? What, where, when, which driver? Yeah. That, 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 there's this whole book I wrote that just goes through all that stuff. Yeah. And you know, I think that like on the, on the ends, on the ends of the spectrum here, you have all the time, every time, 
probably somewhere in there, it's like on freeways only or, so, or something to that equivalent. Well, well, that's okay. If that's where the design to work, that's fine. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to be safer on freeways because those are pretty safe compared to other things. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, there's very, there's numerous startups in the autonomous vehicle space that are operating. I mean, there's a company doing, um, Greensy that does autonomous, uh, lawnmowers and it's, it's upfitting and it's, I, I think it's really cool. It's for commercial and makes a ton of sense. Um, and then yeah. you got folks like, um, outrider that are doing, um, uh, like cross docking within a confined area. And I mean, there, there's like really interesting, use cases that are kind of in that middle. And then the other end is like not, not doing this, just having, if anything, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, would you say you've got like just uh, um, like ADAS systems that are going to assist? Is that, is that how you describe that on the other end? Well, I, I don't like to call anything that grabs hold of steering assistance because the computer's driving, the person's just there for the ride and watching. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so uh, anything, anytime the steering wheel is under control of the computer, that's not ADAS, that's automation. That's an important distinction to make. But yeah, there's the whole spectrum. And really, uh, there, you have these companies pushing to put trucks out on the road and the environment is not as complex, but it still has, there are pedestrians out on a highway. They're there, not many, mm -hmm. but they're there. And you've got this big heavy truck going really fast and doing a lot of damage if it hits something. So it's, I think people say it's safer or it's simpler, but it's not simpler. It's different than you just haven't figured out all the, the hard things yet. So we'll see how that goes. But but the magic is in re reducing the complexity of the situation. So you're talking about uh, logistics yards and stuff like that. Those are great because you can exclude people who are not professionals who have the transponders on or whatever, right? You can exclude people who shouldn't be there. Everyone knows the rules. It's not too fast. The stakes are much lower and you can control the situation. You can make sure everything's painted the right color. So the magic in this technology is going to be that the well-controlled, simplified situations are viable. And we're going to see the industry continue to struggle with the uncontrolled, wide-open environments. That's what I think is going to happen. Well said. So in closing, I always like asking for our listeners, what podcasts, newsletters, trade events, uh, what, what are you tuning into? And we'll be sure to put in the show notes. Sure. Uh, I, okay. I, I will leave out the academic wonky stuff, right? <laughs> You can throw it in there. We well, like safe, academic There's SafeComp, the International Safety Conference. I love that, right? Uh, but the the more mainstream things, I like the Autonicast. Uh, that's a good one. And um, there's also Cautionary Tales is a more general one, which just, because I love this idea of learning from history. Uh, so Cautionary Tales does that. Uh, and in terms of uh, someone to read, I like the uh, Ojo Yoshida report. Uh, Junko Yoshida does some really great write-ups on this this topic, so I think they're that's a that's a that one you have to pay, but you get a free trial. But they have some really good content there. So that's those are the things I like listening to and reading. And last question: How can listeners get in touch with you? Where do you want to send them? The best way is to follow me on LinkedIn. I, I do not do Twitter these days, but LinkedIn. Uh, we can put a LinkedIn uh, link in the show notes and, and you can follow me. I, I post several times a week and I try and make them uh, educational. I'll say, well, here's a crash, but not here's a crash. Look at the crash more. Here's a crash and here's something interesting to note and something the industry should learn from it or, or a perspective that you're not hearing from the news folks. So I, I try and do that as much as I can. Sounds great. And thank you. That was Phil Copeman, Associate Professor at Carnegie Mellon University and author of the Safe Autonomy blog. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening and see you next time in the bike lane.